So you're going to want a Bible. If you have a Bible, go in and open up to Luke chapter 1. If you need a Bible, we have some uh, folks that are going to walk around and pass them out. Just slip up a hand and we will put a Bible in your hand so that you can follow along with us. So we're in this Advent season as you're finding your way there to Luke chapter 1. Advent simply means arrival, and it is a season that we, uh, we celebrate the arrival of God in the person of Jesus, this baby born in Bethlehem. At the same time, we, uh, we hold on to the expectation of God's arrival in Jesus when he returns and restores all things, set things all right in his kingdom. But Advent is not just simply a time of looking back to the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem, nor is it simply a time of looking ahead to the arrival of Jesus one day to come. It is an invitation to encounter Jesus now, arriving into our lives with hope and peace and joy and love, wherever we find ourselves in this very moment. So where are you this Advent season? Where do you need God to breathe hope into your life? Where are those places of anxiety that you need God to root you in his peace, to remind you of his love? Where are those places that you need to be filled by his joy? Because Advent isn't just simply the reminder of what was nor the hope for what will be. It is the expectation that God wants to meet us right now. In fact, Advent in the early church, in the beginnings of, of celebrating Advent as a season, it was a time of repentance. It was 40 days, just like the Lent season leading up to Easter, of fasting, which is a little bit ironic that we uh, celebrate Advent now, beginning with Thanksgiving, the biggest gluttonous feast day of the year, and uh, all the holiday parties of December is now what Advent has become, but that's not what Advent was meant to be. Advent was meant to be a time of reflection and repentance, of looking at our lives and, and, and seeing, okay, God, where have we gotten off track? Where have we lost you along the way? Where have we forgotten what really matters? In fact, I think we're so bombarded by the, by, by the marketing of Christmas and all of these you know, uh, promises of, of joy and hope and peace. If you just buy this or decorate with this or put these lights on your house or go to this party or do this thing or, or, or have this toy, that we forget that none of those actually satisfy our souls. Amen? And yet we give a whole lot of time and energy and attention and emotion to it, don't we? Which party should we go to? What cards are we supposed to send? Advent has been a time of coming back to Jesus. And so last week we looked at peace and, and that comparison. Brandon did a brilliant job of, of comparing this one, King Herod, who looked like he had everything power and riches, authority, wealth, position, and the coming of Jesus absolutely derailed him into a violent, murderous rampage. And then there was this one, Mary, this unknown girl with no promise of the future in a no-name town, being told news that would scandalize her for the rest of her life, and yet in that moment found herself rooted in the peace of God, in the presence of his promises. An invitation to recenter ourselves, 
on the reality of God. And this week we're looking at hope. It's a word that culturally means something very different than what we mean biblically. Culturally, hope is sort of just a, a, a wish. I hope I get that job. I hope the Bulldogs will finally beat Alabama. Too soon? Sorry. <laughs> we do know what a hope deferred makes the heart sick uh, looks like, don't we? There's this wishful thinking. I hope. But in the Bible, hope is this confident, ex- confident expectation of God's goodness. The joyful expectation of good, even in the face of the impossible. Anticipating a future that is better than the present, but only possible by the work of God. In the Hebrew, there's two words for hope. The first word, yakal. Say that with me. Yakal. Okay, three of you said it. Yakal. There you go. Okay, good job, class. Yakal just simply means to, to wait. That hope is waiting. It's used of Noah in the ark during the flood as he waited for the storm waters to recede. He called, waited for, hoped for what God was going to do in his deliverance. The second word is this, kava. Say that, kava. That was better. Also means to wait. But this word kava actually comes from the word kav, which means cord or rope. And it carries with it this sense of expectation, of anticipation. I mean, you know that feeling, right? Of, of like on the edge of your seat waiting for something to happen. So if you imagine a cord being stretched tight, almost to the point of breaking, and that sense of anticipation before the release, that is kava. Expectation, expectant anticipation. So in Isaiah, we're told that the farmer plants vines and kavaz, waits in anticipation for his grapes. Over 40 times in the Psalms, the word for hope is used, and all of them are about waiting for the Lord. It's not about waiting for our circumstances to change. It's about waiting for God to show up. Psalm 39, 7, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? Kava, my hope, Yakal, is in you. That hope is waiting in anticipation for God to show up in miraculous deliverance. It's not just cheery optimism, a positive outlook for the future. In fact, over and over again, when hope shows up in the Bible, it sh- people hold on to that word when it looks like their circumstances will never change. Because they're trusting a God that will fulfill his purposes and his promises regardless of what happens to them because hope is not about us. Hope is about what God is going to do. And in fact, what if the fulfillment of God's best, God's plans, actually require your circumstances to get worse? What if hope that God is going to fulfill what God is going to do and what only God can do, that we trust in his goodness, not in what we think is best. Can we hold on to that kind of hope in this Advent season? And so we're going to dive into this story 
this Christmas story to watch, to see how hope is birthed in a man named Zechariah. Last week, uh, Brandon read the story out of Luke that we would know of as the Christmas story, beginning in Luke 1.26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Familiar story, we know that angelic messenger bringing this miraculous news of deliverance, of God fulfilling his promises, of ages, waiting, of kavah, anticipating God to show up. But notice that the story of Mary and the angel doesn't start with Mary. In fact, it's in the sixth month. And what is that the sixth month of? Not just simply the sixth month of the year but actually the sixth month of another miraculous baby. Another miraculous divine announcement. So now flip back to Luke 1, verse 5. And let's read this story together. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So here's the the context of this story. It's a story that begins with barrenness. And it's not just a, a random couple who's unable to have a child, who aren't able to reproduce, but it's the barrenness of the righteous. I mean, they are doing everything they know to do to be faithful to God. But there's still no life there. They come from a long line of faithful people. They're showing up day after day, doing the things they believe God is calling them to do, and yet still... The hope for what God could produce in them, produce through them, is not coming to pass. Their greatest hope of a child to be born has long since been prayed for, begged for, cried for, and then forgotten and died. And so now, old in life, having given up on that hope of what could be, Zechariah finds himself again going through the motions of his religious duty. You know, this story of barrenness is actually a familiar story throughout Scripture. Those of you that have been a part of, uh, been with us the last several months, we've been going through the book of Genesis together. And the book of Genesis begins with with a picture of barrenness, with the Spirit of God hovering over the formless chaos of the world, the barrenness of the world, and into that barren lifeless dark world the word of god speaks and brings forth life and light and goodness and beauty that same picture of god hovering over the barren to bring forth life then finds itself in genesis chapter 12 with this other couple that's old in age that's unable to have children abraham and sarah and god promises them that through their children through their line he's not just going to bless them but he's going to bless the entire world bringing life and light and goodness and beauty 
redeeming and restoring that which was lost. This familiar, this story of, of barrenness and God showing up in the brokenness is a familiar story, but it's a story that they would have told and retold over and over again, but somewhere along the way they had forgotten what was true. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, the hour of prayer. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Zechariah was a priest, and, and uh, he would have been a part of a pool of people. He would have been on staff at the church, so to speak, that was in charge of the religious things. And they would have followed a certain protocol, a certain order of service, that every day they did certain things in the temple. But only certain people could go into the most sacred parts of the temple and carry out the most sacred acts. And so when it was Zechariah's turn for his staff team to show up to do the religious things, then they would choose by chance, by, they would draw lots for the person that would get to go do the most important, the most sacred thing. And this day, just like any other day, that Thursday, that Zechariah showed up for work on time. He's dutiful. He's faithful. He's done this for decades. He knows what to do. He knows how this works. He's had the privilege probably in the past of getting to do those most sacred acts in the most sacred places where supposedly the presence of God dwells. So he shows up in his religious duty and he does the thing that he knows he's supposed to do. And when his name is drawn, he probably doesn't even blink twice because he knows exactly how to handle it when he's called upon to go do the things of God. So he starts to go through the motions. He starts to do the things that he's memorized, to say the words, to carry out the acts. And he walks into the temple to begin what is his job to fulfill, but this time, God shows up. Now, the significance of God showing up in this moment isn't just simply that Zechariah, in, in his barrenness, in, in his religious duty, had forgotten who God was and what God did somewhere along the way. But the reality is it had been 400 years since God had shown up for anybody. The last word of the prophet came four centuries before. So all of the stories that they told and retold and memorized about God's promises and God's power, God's availability in his presence, how God loves them and is faithful to them, how, how God hasn't given up on them and God is present to them, how, how God wants to show up in their lives and reform their community to make them a light to the nations, how God wants to burn something in their souls that will change the world was 400 years ago. And now silence. This past week, we've been celebrating Monroe's Bicentennial. 200 years of Monroe's history. In fact, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, the final uh, event of this week of celebration 
It was going to be in here in Denton Hall, Monroe then and now, looking at 200 years of history. They did that to start it last Sunday, and it was amazing to just watch uh, you know, slide after slide, picture after picture, person after person that called Monroe home, and all of the history that came in this place, or came out of this place, that literally changed the United States, that changed Georgia, things that happened in this and from this city over the last 200 years. And looking at all of that history over the last two centuries, that 200 years ago, a group of people stood on Spring and Broad Street and said, you know what, we should make this a town, and we should call it Monroe. And everything that happened from that point forward, then multiply that times two. And 400 years before was the last time that God had shown up in a word that showed that he even cared and that he hadn't forgotten them. So who can blame Zechariah, who probably feels like God's forgotten him in his life, but who cares about his little life? He's, whatever, 70 years old? It's like 400 years that God hasn't shown that he's cared. And so he starts walking through the religious motions. And I just wonder how many of us in this room do the exact same thing. We got up this morning. We got our kids dressed, or at least, you know, one of two shoes on their feet before throwing them in the car. Some of y'all got in huge fights on the way over here, and then got out of the door, put a smile on your face, and somebody asked, how are you doing? Man, we are blessed. <laughs> Especially that one. Bless the snot out of that one. <laughs> and you know how to come in and sit down and sing the songs and open the Bible and do the thing. We know the religious stories and the acts. And some of them are really familiar, like this Christmas story. God showing up to Mary in her brokenness and her lostness and her smallness and saying, you are highly favored and God is going to do something miraculous through your life. And we read it and we know it. We probably have it memorized. And we walk through the doors and we do the thing. What's God actually going to do right now? Does he even care? Does he care what you woke up panicked about? That some of you couldn't even get out of bed earlier this week? What kept you from falling asleep last night? I mean, does he care of the things that, that are tearing at your soul or the places that you feel absolutely lost? Or maybe you've just numbed it all. And some of us know what it feels like to just go through the motions, don't we? Whether that's going through the motions in our marriage, or going through the motions with our kids, or going through the motions with our job, or just going through the motions with God. And in the same way that God begins to tap on Zechariah's shoulder, and his first response is to be troubled, there are some of you that if you're, if you're honest just a little bit, you feel that troubling scratch in your soul, that this is not all that there is, and this is not all that it was supposed to be. Amen? But what if God wants to show up? What if God wants to do something in your life? that only he can do. Would you be awake enough to even see it? And some of us have gone through the motions for so long, we've just learned how to numb that scratch on our souls that there's more. And maybe you numb that with 
a glass of bourbon at night or with enough Netflix to numb your brain or constant scrolling of your social media feed. We've learned to numb just to get by because we're tired. We don't want to admit that we're just pretending. But what if God showed up? What if God does show up? What if this thing is way more real than any of us can even begin to comprehend? What if God's desire is to speak into that silence? To speak over the barrenness? And for me, and not to A few weeks ago, I got to go to a church. Uh, it's not really a church. It's more of a network of churches in Tampa called Tampa Underground. And, uh, and sitting there with these people, they're just watching God just move in miraculous ways throughout their city. And we went on this driving tour, and they were showing us all the places that they were doing ministry. And they're like, oh, that's the house that we bought in the middle of the poorest part of town to, to see this change happen in this part of the city. And that's the bike shop that we started to, to reach kids in the community. And, and that's the ministry that got started over here. And those are our people living over there. And that's the, the neighborhood that they moved into. And I was sitting there thinking, I could tell you this exact same story. I could take you on that driving tour of Monroe. I could show you the house that we bought in the poorest part of town. I could show you where we started the bike shop to reach kids. I could show you where we prayed with a couple of meth addicts to receive Christ right before they were taken off to prison. I could show you the stories. But somewhere along the way, and this is why Zechariah is absolutely resonating in my soul. Maybe this has nothing to do with anyone else in this room, but I feel like there's something God is awakening for us as his people. And it is not to keep playing church. It is, it is to step into the call of, that he has on our lives of the expectation that he wants to meet us, speak to us in our brokenness and our barrenness to birth something in us that only he can do. And I sat there at the table after we'd gone on this tour and heard their stories and listened to their models of ministry and my thought was, we know this. It was never about growing a church or doing a church service. This was about empowering us to celebrate what God is doing the rest of the week and then not to move from spectators to participants, to stand up into his call on our lives and then to go live this thing out. And somewhere along the way, I had to confess and I had to repent that I had forgotten what it was all about. And I don't know if it was the mass and the weight. It's real easy <laughs> I'll be honest, some of you haven't been here long enough. If it's your first time to grace, forgive us, try us again next week, it'll be better. <laughs> when we first started, it was real easy with 20 people in an empty warehouse that we were about to shut down to do whatever we wanted. Because no one had any expectations. It was failing anyway. We could try, and we could experiment, and we could play around. We could do what we wanted and just, and just trust God with it. We could take risks because there were no expectations. There was no, well, that's how we always done it. And then you start to grow, and people start to show up. And all of a sudden, you have 10 years of history in this beautiful, amazing new campus, and it's easy to forget what this whole thing is about. 
And when I feel like God is awakening in me, the repentance that he was calling me to was that, it, that this is a means to an end. We come together to celebrate what God is doing, to remember who he is, and then to live this thing out side by side the rest of the week. And there are some of us in this place that simply need God to breathe a word of life into our barrenness. That life is to birth something not just in you, but through you. There are some of you that need God's healing in your brokenness. But it is not just simply to heal you to live your life. It is to heal you that you can become an agent of healing for the sake of others. I mean, even right now, where do you need God's hope restored in your life? I mean, not just as an interesting philosophical church exercise, but even just close your eyes. And just ask, Lord, where have I given up hope? Where have I lost sight of you? Where have I quit believing that, that you can bring breakthrough? That you will fulfill your promises? Maybe it's that relationship that feels so frayed and strained that there's no hope of reconciliation. Maybe it's that addiction that you keep battling week after week, month after month. It just feels like it will never go away. Maybe it's that call that, you, that God has, has put in your soul to go be about something for his sake. And it feels like every time you try, you stumble flat on your face and you've just quit trying. It's too hard. That third grade classroom, that that was your mission field and you were fired up about it, but then those little brats came in for the 80th day? <laughs> what hope is there for them? How could God use you? Just go through the motions and do your thing and go home and clock out. Maybe it's that neighborhood that you all used to walk around and pray over. God, will you do something here? Will you bring people and community that, that restores people's souls? But then somewhere along the way, you quit meeting people, and it just didn't seem to come to happen, and then that couple got that divorce, and then they moved away, and now we stopped walking, and now we stopped believing that maybe God wants to do something here. Where do you need God to restore hope? Because he doesn't change. Zechariah, in response to God showing up, surprising him in his unexpected every day, responds with a question. How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. I don't know if he was just trying to get around saying that his wife is old and that was like the best way that he could come up with it. She's advanced. But Zegar's question isn't a question of discovery, it's a question of doubt. It's different than Mary. Mary, God shows up and surprises her. God speaks into the silence of her life and into the silence of, of God's people. 
in a way that he hasn't in 400 years. And she asked a question, how will this be? But her heart posture wasn't like, there's no way this is going to happen. How in the world are you going to do it, God? It was like, all right, you say it's going to happen. Could you explain a little bit about how I'm going to get pregnant without another man involved? It's a question of discovery, not a question of doubt. Zechariah's question pushes away what God's going to do. And so in response, I love the angel answers him, I am Gabriel. It could have just stopped right there. You're going to question me, boy? Every time that Gabriel, the angel, shows up, he's like shifting nations. And I'm showing up in your little Tuesday morning work routine? I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, little man. I'm adding that. I just can imagine. And to bring you this good news. Do you not even see how good it is? Man, if there's a word right there for me, it's sometimes it's like I, how easy it is to lose sight of the goodness of God and what he's doing, to be so overwhelmed by the things that he hasn't done yet. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Just a few things there about hope. Hope is found in silence. Hope is found in silence. God shutting Zechariah's mouth was one of the greatest gifts that he could give Zechariah. To give him enough space and room to quit telling God what God needed to know to be able to hear from God what he needed to know. There are some of us that are so, uh, that are, spend so much time and so much busyness letting God know all the ways that he's disappointing us that we're not leaving room for God to tell us, hey, this is how I'm actually showing up for you. Hope is born in silence. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just to shut our mouths and to listen. Because we have an eternal God who is eternally speaking. Even right now, the Spirit of God is speaking a word for you uniquely in your circumstance in this very moment. Do you believe that? Like right now, there's radio waves that are flowing through this auditorium. We could listen to any kind of music we wanted to if only we had the, trans the, the radio to tune in to that dial. And there is a God that is so powerful that for every 7 billion people on this planet, he has a unique radio wave that he's speaking to you. This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to remember. But in our busyness, in our numbness, in our despondency, in our, in our voices, we don't make space to listen. that God is the one arranging circumstances. The reminder of who he is, that we can trust God's presence in the midst of barrenness. That we can trust God's goodness and his promises in the midst of disappointments and struggle. That we can trust God's plan and timing even when we don't see the big picture. 
and that we will never actually see the full picture of what God is doing. And we can trust that he is bigger than we are. And we can trust that in Christ, God is no longer silent. That word there, when the angel says, everything will be fulfilled in its time, is the word kairos. It's a word we talk about a lot here at Grace, because we believe that God has a kairos moment, an opportune moment. It's different than the other Greek word for time, which is chronos. Chronos is the measurement of time. It's where we get the word chronology from. It's seconds that turn into minutes, that turn into hours, that turn into days. It's Zechariah that shows up at 8 a.m. because that's when his shift starts, and it runs till 4, and then he knows that he goes home, and they have dinner at 5, and then they got to take the kids to soccer practice at 6. I don't know that Zechariah is, oh, he didn't have any kids, so he didn't have to worry about soccer practice. But Kairos is an altogether different thing. Kairos is the supernatural breaking into the natural. Kairos is a God moment in our everyday time. Kairos is the power in the presence of God, his voice speaking into this moment wherever you find yourself. Hope is found in silence, and hope is fostered in suffering. If you want to flip to Romans 5, having talked about this miracle of what God did using the story of Abraham and Sarah, that in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he'd been told. Paul continues, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That our hope isn't God simply changing our circumstances. Our hope is that the glory, the fullness, the power, the reality of God would be revealed. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That suffering is not actually the enemy of hope. Suffering is actually the fertilizer of hope, because it is when we are pressed It is when we are struggling. It is when we feel alone or lost or when we come to ourselves on our knees in repentance and realize that we are broken, that we are confused, that we don't know what to do. That in that moment that we lift our eyes up, waiting for the expectation for what only God can do, that he renews our hope, that he hasn't changed and he never will, that his promises have not been dropped and they never will, that he is faithful, and he is good, and he is true, that he knows more than we will ever know, he sees more than we will ever see, he is doing more than we will ever do or can even begin to imagine. Hope is found in silence, and it is formed in suffering. Those nine months of silence with God and all the pressures of the world around him, Zechariah found hope. The end of Zechariah's story 
The nine months pass. He hasn't said a word. He's learned to write some things down to get his point across. The baby is born. On the eighth day is traditionally when they go to circumcise the baby and, and at that point to give the child its official name. And, and so they come to, Mary, I mean, to Elizabeth and they ask, what do you want this baby to be named? And she says, his name is John. That's what the angel had told them. Somehow Zechariah had, had communicated that to his wife. And, and so she says the name is going to be John. And, and all of the family that's gathered around push back on that because there's no child in their family named John. You name the child for somebody in their family line. It should be Zechariah Jr. at the minimum. And she's like, no, it's going to be John. So they motion over to the father who's sitting silent in the corner. And they ask, well, do you want his name to be? And he writes down on the tablet, his name is John. And at that moment, his mouth opens and he can speak. You see, because it was the act of obedience that gave Zechariah a voice. Because in the silence, he had found hope that God was true. The only thing the angel asked Zechariah to do, his only part in the whole drama, was to name that baby John. God said, I'm going to take care of all the rest. And this is what that child's going to do. You, name him John. And that simple act of obedience is where Zechariah found his voice again. So hope it's found in the silence, it's fostered in suffering, but it's lived in obedience. And we take that next small step of faith. And so often we expect that when God speaks, it's going to be some massive revelation, and the next act of obedience is going to be some huge choice, like moving to Benin or to China. But most often when God speaks, it's that little step of obedience. It's come get on your knees and confess that sin. It is forgive that person. Make that phone call. Go talk to that neighbor. Start prayer walking your neighborhood again. Wake up early and be alone with me. Put the Netflix down and open your Bible. It's the simple, small steps of obedience, of faith. I debated on sharing this analogy, but it, it's, it, for me, it, it's resonating right now. Because I hate it when like, pastors do this like, humble brag thing, and I'm about to do it. <laughs> but several months ago, we were coming to the end of this uh, building project, capital campaign thing, and I was like, you know what? I need a new challenge in my life. And, so, uh, and on my bucket list for a while now, and I don't know... What in the world possessed me to write this on my bucket list? But I wrote, I want to run a half marathon. Not a full marathon. <laughs> a half. And uh, because I'm not a runner. I mean, at all. The farthest I've ever run in my life that somebody wasn't making me run was maybe four miles. I've run, and that I think I did twice. And I can remember both of them. And I'd run like two 5Ks in my life. I mean, I, and hated every moment of it. So I, why I chose to, this to be my challenge. But we did. We're going to run this half marathon. So I literally Googled. So Sadie agreed to this. We're going to train for a half marathon. And so I Googled easiest half marathons, <laughs> which, if you're curious about, is Kiwa Island in December. So I was like, done. That one. It's flat, and the weather will be nice. And so we signed up for this thing. One of my favorite things about training is, uh, is that every time I train, I get to say, that's the farthest I've ever run in my life. So I came home after running five miles, and I was like, that's the farthest I've ever run in my life. 
you know, six miles. That's the farthest I've ever run in my life. I come in and say, it's like, I know, it's the farthest you've ever run in your life. It's the farthest. And, uh, but going that, starting to run and, and running longer distances, and there's moments that in my head, everything is like, just stop. Why are you doing this to yourself? No one is making you. No one would know if you just quit. <laughs> but realizing that I got into this cadence of what was enabling me to keep moving mile after mile after mile to get to the end of, this, to the end of these runs. And it was this, this uh, dichotomy of moving back and forth between looking at the horizon at where I was headed and then looking back down at my feet and just taking the next step. Looking at the horizon, this is where I'm headed. Just take the next step. This is where we're going. Just take the next step. Just take the next step. Just one more step. Just one more step. Look up. That's where you're going. Just take the next step. And as I was thinking about God birthing hope, rebirthing hope in my soul, of what God has called us to do, that I am confident of whether anyone else joins us in this mission or not, we know what God has called us to do. Confident of what God is calling us as a people to do, as a church. What God wants to do in this city for the sake of the nations. We believe those things, and God is restoring that hope to my soul. And in that place, look at the horizon. This is who he is. He hasn't changed. This is where he's moving us, us towards. It hasn't changed. This is the promises he's spoken. They haven't changed. This is the calling of God on this church. It hasn't changed. Take the next step. Take the next step. Just take the next step. I've forgotten. I want to quit. Look at the horizon. It's where you're headed. Take the next step. And I think there's a lot of us in this room. I don't feel like it's just me. But there are some things that God is wanting to restore hope in your life and your call, the dreams he's placed in your life, the relationships, the places that he's calling you to himself. And so I'm calling us as a church to just get on our knees. Advent is a season of repentance, and repentance starts when we admit our brokenness, when we admit the places that we've lost sight that we have forgotten things that we have gone different place, different ways we've focused on different things we've made different priorities and god saying looking us full in the eye with unconditional love for you in his heart saying you're lost and you're broken and you need me and for some of you that first step of obedience is surrendering your life to him in the first place have you ever trusted jesus christ with your life and so maybe for some of you, the first thing is to get on your knees and to, to say, Jesus, I need you. I've tried to run this thing, and I am broken, and it is not working for me. And there are some of you that, like me, have just gotten lost along the way. And we get on our knees in that place of repentance and ask God to remind us to restore us. It's in the brokenness of the altar where God meets us. I mean, that's the point of communion. That's why we celebrate it every week. Communion isn't just simply this religious act we do. Communion is the reminder of the presence and the power, the forgiveness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we take communion and you take that little wafer, that reminder of that bread that Jesus took and he broke and said, this is my body given for you. 
It's the substance of the Lord, as real as for your soul as that little wafer is on your tongue. When we take communion, it's coming to Jesus. And maybe for some of you, it's coming to Jesus for the first time. You've been pretending long enough. And maybe it's coming to Jesus again for the thousandth time because we have so much farther to go. And he's constantly bringing us back to that place of brokenness at the altar. And that little cup, that reminder of that that wine that Jesus held on to and said, "This, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of a new covenant, of restored relationship with God our creator. The Bible warns us that that communion meant as an act of faith, of receiving what Christ has done for us and what he is calling us into. That even as believers, we are not to take that lightly, to not take communion without examining our heart first. And that prayer of the psalmist, Lord, search me and know me. Is there any wayward thought in me? And the reality is this, for every one of us sitting in this room, there are a lot of wayward thoughts. There are none of us exempt. We are all broken. We are all a mess. We all need Jesus. And we are all deeply loved and deeply valued. And he is waiting to wrap his arms around you. Because in that place of brokenness, when we kneel and receive and surrender, we then stand up with the promise that those that Jesus meets, he fills with the power of his Holy Spirit. Calls them sons and daughters. And sends them out as ministers of reconciliation. Ambassadors of the gospel. That is who you are. But we have to remember it first. We have to come to the brokenness first. There's no resurrection without dying. And there are a lot of us in this room that we need to die for hope to be reborn. Do you believe that God can do that in this moment, even right now? And I told the 9 o'clock, and I'll tell you, I'll go on and tell you so we can worship and pray and take communion. I know what my little small step of obedience is. I got done teaching and I was a total mess because of everything that had just happened and stood over there and we were singing and and it's a small step. I mean, it's it's like a joke. It's not even that big of a deal. But I'm going to be here at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning on my knees praying. And I invite any and all of you that are joining me because I do know this. There has been no move of God throughout history that was not grounded in God's people getting on their knees and praying to him. And so if I'm alone, I'm alone. But I will tell you this. I will leverage everything I have for those of you that are willing to go after God together. If you hunger for the things of God, and this isn't enough, and you are tired of pretending, I will give you everything I have to go after this together. What is God saying to you? Let's stop the charade. Let's step into what God has. Let's stand. And those of you that want to come kneel, if you want to take communion, search your heart. If God is calling you to surrender your life to Christ, to come back to him like a lost son or daughter. We have elders. We have prayer team. I'll be standing right over there. There are people that want to pray with you. We will walk.
walk in this with you every step of the way, as long as the Lord allows. So Lord Jesus, we're here. And maybe we're here because it's what we do. It's Sunday at 1045 and it's what we do. God, forgive us. May we be a people that show up expectant. God, that show up with the stories to tell of how you met us on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. God, thank you for the beauty of this rhythm that for 2,000 years, God's people come together to remember who they are, to remember most importantly who you are. To hold on to what you've called us to to send us out to be your people the rest of the week. And like Zechariah, may we step into this space. Lord, whether it's in our barrenness, our brokenness, our numbness, wherever we are, God, and will you tap us on the shoulder and may we hear your voice speak. Lord, what do you want us to know? God, what are you doing? And may we respond for your glory. It is your plan. You are the most high, the creator of everything, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You reign supreme. You are God and we are not. You are God 